Guess who is on the show today? Who is on the show today? Well, she's sort of a BFD. Okay. And she's definitely my favorite scholar. She's on my top five. Top five. Okay. Tell me more. Her name is Dr. Julia Frostino. (gasps) Yay. I love her. And she's here to talk to us about her experience at Frank last year as a prize finalist and what she's working on next. That is so exciting. Hi, we're so happy to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I think you guys are both BFDs, and I love you. My heart is so warm right now. <laughs> How often is it that your top five get, tells you that they love you? Not very often. I love you. Am I in your top five? Well, you're obviously in my top five, but this is a little bit of a different situation. That's true. This is Julia Frostino. And we're in a very small recording booth right now, so... Good thing she can't see a sweat. <laughs> yes. Uh, how have you been since Frank? I've been great. Uh, being at Frank last year was really inspiring. Uh, and I left, I left with so many ideas and probably even more passion for public interest communication, if that's possible. Um, so... Since Frank, I worked with some of my colleagues in the Reed College of Media at West Virginia University, which is where I am, and we started the Public Interest Communication Research Lab in our Media Innovation Center. So you are building, I think, the first ever lab in public interest communications. I think so, and I was really inspired by Frank to do that, and by you all. You all are jumping in headfirst into the PIC arena and um, and I, I want to do the same. I love it. So what was your favorite memory from Frank 2016? Oh, that is so tough. I would, I mean, I loved your and Lauren's intro to Seven Minutes in Heaven with a Scientist <laughs> um, with, the, with the Frank Prize finalist. I thought that that was such a fun moment. And getting to go in the closet with you, Annie, was a dream. Totally. And my favorite part was when we showed up in the same outfit with the same hair. How hilarious was that? <laughs> mm-hmm. That was good. We should see if we could do that again this year. Yes. That means, you have, to, that means you have to come to Frank this year so we can match again. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm but trying. We've done that before, too. We were both on our way to another conference, and I posted a picture at the airport wearing leggings and, and boots, and you were wearing the same leggings and boots and took the same uh, exact picture. Oh, I totally forgot about that. We were both drinking coffee at the time, too. Yes. This leggings, boots, and coffee in our selfie. That was fun. I have a theory that we're the same person. I would love that. <laughs> So can you, for the listeners who have not been to Frank and have not seen Seven Minutes in Heaven live, can you tell them a little bit about what that was like in your experience? That was so fun. So basically, Seven Minutes in Heaven with a Scientist has an amazing theme song, which you hear on this podcast. Um, but Can we you got sing it for us? Live. I'm not singing it. <laughs> Fine. I'm not as good as you. You could sing it, though. 
I'll only sing it with you when we're in the same outfit. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> I'm in. Um, but basically, we just talked about some of our research that, uh, well, the particular research pieces that were accepted as prize finalists. So there were three of us, and uh, the other two were just phenomenal. Um, but I just had a, a fabulous time uh, talking about the zombie dilemma. Yes. So remind everybody, what is the zombie dilemma? Uh, so it's based on this article that I published with my co-author, Liang Ma, and um we published that in the Journal of Applied Communication Research, and it's called CDC's Use of Social Media and Humor in a Risk Campaign, Preparedness 101, Zombie Apocalypse. So the article is based on the CDC's Zombie Apocalypse Preparedness Campaign. So they, they launched this campaign a few years ago. It started with a blog post from their then-director that detailed what you need to do to survive a zombie overtaking. And their slogan was, get a kit, make a plan, be prepared. And the post, so the post had information about how you do all of that. And the idea was, if you're prepared for a zombie apocalypse, you're prepared for any emergency. And this blog post went viral, billions of media impressions. And so the CDC made posters and a comic book and buttons and widgets. And they ultimately won really high praise and awards for this campaign. Um, and that, and it spawned kind of similar zombie-focused, all-hazards preparedness campaigns from states and schools and you name it. So phenomenal at generating buzz and raising awareness. But we were interested in, did people get a kit, make a plan, be prepared? So we ran an experiment that tested the blog posts with and without zombie messages. And we found out that the participants in our experiment who read the post with the zombie messages said that they were significantly less likely to intend to get a kit, to intend to make a plan, to intend to be prepared, and they weren't even going to go to CDC's website for more information in the future. Right. So their effort to raise awareness backfired on them, and people were less likely to get a kit and get prepared. Right. Yeah, it backfired on them. And then some follow-up research that we've started doing has shown that it, uh, it might even also be reducing their ability to remember, recall, bring up the messages as well. So even if they didn't take it seriously, we were thinking maybe if they remembered the messages um, and thus knew what to do in, an, in, in a disaster in the future, maybe it would still be kind of worth it. But um, it's looking like it might be the case that people also don't even remember what to put in a kit when they read it in the zombie blog. I remember there was something about zombies. Should I bring my meat cleaver? Right. If you're going meat cleaver, fine. I'm taking a croquet mallet. <laughs> I just want to know, after we talked about this last year and we talked about how important it is to get an emergency kit, do either of you have an emergency kit? I've thought about it. <laughs> I have one of sorts. I have thought, thought about it. <laughs> no, see, because when we had the hurricanes came come through, um, we had a kit. I think that the bottled water that we have is no longer good, but we had a lot of it set up because we were kind of freaked out. Mm. Well, we went out, my husband and I went out, and we got lots of food, lots of canned food, bottled water. We bought it all, but then he ate all of our hurricane snacks before the hurricane even came <laughs> He just, oh my God. <laughs> we were locked in, so we just <laughs> ate instead of doing anything else. See, we had okay. the opposite problem. We bought all of the food, the hurricane came through, and 
It was like a light breeze, at least here in Gainesville. We were very lucky. But then we had all of this food and we're like, oh, what are we going to do all this? We've got like a lot of canned nuts and bread. <laughs> I mean, I'm not really sure what we were thinking was going to happen, but we had sandwiches for several weeks thereafter. <laughs> uh, yeah. So what are you working on now? One of the things I'm doing right now, I'm collecting data with one of my PIC research lab teams for a couple of experiments that test the effects of 360-degree video using the Oculus Rift headset versus watching the same content via traditional video on a computer screen, like a YouTube video, um, and then as well as what happens when you include human content, so people doing things, versus just the devastation and destruction with a lack of human content. So, um, so we know that the most massive amount of help for flood victims comes in the immediate aftermath of the flood. Um, and that kind of makes sense, and probably you can think of anecdotal evidence to support it, too. Uh, but, but flooding recovery often takes many, many years, and it requires resources that are above and beyond that initial push. And people can really suffer and struggle during that time. So, so we had our, our WVU resident video storytelling guru, David Smith, help us put together these really great video stimuli from, from the devastation, flood devastation in southern West Virginia, um, and a few months ago, you might remember hearing about this, there was really bad flooding in West Virginia. It claimed 24 lives, um, and, and the recovery there is far from over. So we're trying to see how media type and content influence how people feel and think and act in response to viewing flood devastation in videos. And I'm particularly interested in the extent to which these different setups and the various types of exposure influence viewers' intentions to donate their time or their money or even just to gather and share that information in addition to how they feel and how involved they are in it and things like that. So you're uh, essentially taking the approach that you can maybe use some of these different types of technologies to, as opposed to everybody gives money at once and then nobody remembers it, make sure that people mm -hmm. remember it and continue to support these communities. Yeah, exactly. How can we evoke the right amount of involvement in the situation and the right level of emotions um, without overtaxing people's cognitive processing, but enough to get them so that they realize that this is still a problem and they see it as something that they have the ability to help with and the self-efficacy to help with and continue to help these communities rebuild. That's really interesting. There's also some research that says that people are more likely to engage in issues when they are presented with the issue in, in terms of its local impact. Are you looking at any of that research as you are testing out these stories on the community affected by the floods? Uh, yeah. In fact, we were actually thinking about including those variables um, in a couple of these studies, and we still might do that. So varying the, the distance the uh, spatial distance that someone feels and the psychological distance that someone feels from the area. And we think that these technologies could potentially close the gap on that feeling of distance that allows people to remove themselves from it and therefore not feel as, um, as, as likely to, to give and help and donate and contribute. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. We're out of time. Aww. We can going. listen to you talk forever. No, we are way past seven-ish minutes in heaven. We are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think this just means we have to have you back on the show. 
Yeah, like all the time. <laughs> you are. You should come on the show anytime you're thinking something. We would love to talk to you about it. Oh, my gosh. Can we just talk every day? I, I would really guys. like that because now I have all of these amazing ideas. So thank you so much for joining us. This was a really cool conversation. We really appreciate you being on. More than happy. I, I would come back anytime and talk to you all. I find you guys incredibly fascinating. We're going to hold you to that. Go ahead, do it. Seven Minutes in Heaven is produced by Frank, an organization of changemakers and movement builders who use strategic science-based communication to ignite social change. Frank is located in the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications. The show is hosted by me, Annie Neiman. And me, Lauren Griffin. Music is by The Captain, and the show is created by us, Brandon Telg, and Scott Kaufman. If you like what you heard, connect with us on social media. We're on Twitter at Frank Gathering, and you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you just can't get enough of the science of social change, subscribe to our newsletter. You can find it on our website, frank.jou.ufl.edu. Just a little bit curious.